0: Welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Someroo. Hey everybody, this week I'm joined by Better Therapeutics co-founder and CEO, Kevin Applebaum, and co-founder and chairman, David Perry. They started Better Therapeutics to change the way diabetes, heart disease, and other metabolic conditions are treated by using prescription software instead of drugs to address the behaviours that are the root causes of disease. Better's prescription digital therapeutics deliver nutritional cognitive behavioural therapy, so CBT, and that targets the cognitive structures and emotional patterns that drive disease-causing behaviors. Hope you enjoy this episode. Kevin and David, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you guys doing? I was going to say this afternoon, because it's this afternoon or this evening for me, but it's morning for you guys. How how are you doing this morning?
1: Fantastic. Thanks for having us on, James. Pleasure to be here.
0: You're very welcome. Whereabouts are you guys speaking to us from today?
2: I'm in uh, central Oregon, just north of the wildfires. And I'm in Telluride, Colorado,
1: where there are no wildfires.
0: (laughs) Very nice. Very nice. (laughs) Um. So, guys, listen. The way that we start these podcasts is we get you to tell your story. Obviously, the two of you have had distinguished careers, I would say, to this point. Um, and now, obviously, the co-founders of Better Therapeutics. So, I'm really looking forward to you guys telling your story. So, Kevin, why don't you go first? Tell us a bit about it.
2: Yeah it's a uh, it's a it's a uh, it's a story that does not exist in a straight line. I think mm-hmm. I've spent most of my professional experience in in starting in consumer products and then in medical devices and health tech. Um, but I got here really um, starting my career in, in the military. I was a, a special operations officer for several years. Uh, and then I left and started my business career at kind of Fortune 15 companies at Procter and Gamble and Pepsi. Uh, and after about 10 plus years of those experiences, I reflected on kind of the past three uh career experiences i had and i was always looking for something small uh entrepreneurial creative uh, less rule driven but i was trying to find those opportunities in three of the largest organizations in the world Uh, and and so clearly i was was not on the right track and so that was kind of the inspiration to to become an entrepreneur uh, at that time, it was more of intuition than a rational decision, but just the feeling that my future uh, probably was uh, going to be fulfilled in entrepreneurial endeavors. I uh, had a good friend in Silicon Valley that was beginning his career as a venture capitalist and through a lot of time spent with him and a lot of you know dinners and, and conversations, I really got my start and my, you know, my first startup in 1996. Uh, And so I've been doing startups usually from the ground up for the last too many years. Uh, uh, And as I mentioned, most of those were started in consumer and then migrated more and more into healthcare and medical devices. And along the way, I had a chance to meet meet David uh, and we'll tell a little bit of that story later.
0: Awesome. Plenty that I want to ask you about that. We recently had uh, a guy called Edmund Ferrar on this podcast. He's the founder of a, a startup in the, here in the UK called Otto. He also has a military background, um, and he talked to us a lot about his leadership training and how that helps him in, uh, in the startup world. So I definitely want to ask you the same stuff. Before we go back and talk about that, David, tell us about yourself.
1: Sure. Well, like Kevin, I've spent most of my career starting and running uh, technology-based startups, um, I have an undergraduate degree in chemical engineering, as as does Kevin, um, and and I took my first job out of college uh, with Exxon. Um, at the time, oil and gas companies were hiring chemical engineers, and, <laughs> and so I took a job in an oil refinery as a process engineer, which has got to be about the least glamorous job one can possibly find, you know? <laughs> if when if you're wearing fire retardant coveralls to work you got to ask yourself you know about your life decisions um I, i did that for five years and and decided i didn't want to do that for the rest of my life uh i was really interested in technology and technology startups and and i was living in california at the time so i had at least geographical access to them and so i started interviewing for jobs in the in those kinds of companies and um and really couldn't get the sort of role I wanted in, in retrospect, it was ridiculously egotistical of me, but, but at the time I thought I deserved sort of higher, better roles. And so I decided I would go to business school in the hopes that, you know, that would translate. And I did, I spent uh, two years getting MBA at Harvard. And have really been starting and running companies since then. Nice. At, at, at Harvard, I wrote five business plans. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I just, I have always done it this way, um, not necessarily thoughtfully, but you know, when I have a business idea, the best way I know to work through it is to write the business plan and see if you can make it work logically and make the math work and so forth. Um, so I concluded that one of those businesses was uh, was promising and I, I basically started the company in my last semester of business school. That company was called Kimdex, and it was one of the first uh, B2B e-commerce companies. Wow. So that was 1997. Wow. And, you know, that was a, it turns out that was a really good time to start a B2B e-commerce company. So uh, 97 was early. So I, you know, I, I got two credit cards with enough credit on them to sort of be able to raise money. And I, ended up raising like 1.9 million dollars at two and a half million pre Oof. in September of '97. Uh, two rounds of capital later, we took Kimdex public in July of '99. so it was less than two years old Wow went out at $15 a share, ended the first day of trading at 29, which made us a billion dollar plus market cap company wow and i was 29 i was gonna say how old (laughs) 29 so um and then that was sort of the height of b2b e-commerce and uh and kimdex traded up from there Mm -hmm. Uh, by february i think the peak was 253 dollars a share (sighs) which made kimdex the the fastest company in history to reach $10 billion at that time. You know, we were still only two and a half years old and I was the youngest person to run a $10 billion public company. Um, That, that lasted about two weeks and then, (laughs) and then the internet bubble burst Uh, and what followed was a brutal year of buying back bonds and unwinding agreements and laying people off. And the hardest professional Year of my career for sure. Yeah. Um, so we end up selling uh, selling Chemdex for a for a fraction of its of its peak value in um, 2001. I took a took a break, came back and helped co-found Anacor Pharmaceuticals in 2002. And and Anacor sort of had the opposite trajectory. Um, you know, started the company in 02 it was a early stage drug development. So we started with sort of core technology. We didn't even have animal data. Like it was really early. Yeah, But the basic idea was we were working on chemistry that could could be the basis for a whole bunch, a whole line of, of therapeutics. Um, almost nobody believed that was a good idea. <laughs> so we ended up uh, raising multiple rounds of financing, taking the pub- company public in 2010, at what I think it was $150 million valuation. I mean, I'd basically been at this for eight years and hadn't created any value. Yeah. Um, the stock traded flat for another two years. So, I mean, we didn't really do anything into 2012. And then we ultimately got our first drug approved and got phase three data on our second drug. And Pfizer bought us for $5.5 billion in 2016. So, wow. But there was a, you know, I, I was literally in it for a decade before it was clear that I was using my time wisely. Like, like, <laughs> uh, Interesting. It, that's sort of the entrepreneurial story you don't hear. You know, like there's you you hear about successes sometimes yeah. you hear about particular failures. But boy, you know, when you're eight years into something and you're not, sh- you know, you're the only, you're still the only one who thinks it's a good idea. Like that. That's uh, those are hard times. Yeah. Um. So again, I took a break and then, you know, really, really became focused on sort of the intersection of food, health and climate change. Um, and in, in 2015, started two companies. Uh, one was Indigo Agriculture, which I went on to be the CEO of. Indigo is still a private company uh, but we've raised over a over billion dollars. Uh, CNBC named us the most innovative company in the world, or most disruptive company in the world in 2019. Um, and I was CEO there until last September. And then Kevin and I started Better Therapeutics together. Um, he and I had known each other through a group called YPO, Young Presidents Organization. Okay. Looking at us now, it's hard to imagine that we were right. uh, qualified for membership <laughs> <laughs> at the time. We did, um, and so we knew each other for probably a decade before before starting the company. And I came to him with the idea of, you know, basically, food is medicine. Like what we're doing in our healthcare system makes almost no sense. You know, we spend four trillion dollars a year in the U.S. treating diseases probably three quarters of that is due to diseases that are caused by patients' behavior themselves. Yeah. You know, it's things like diabetes and heart disease and so forth. And yet we spend almost none of that 3 trillion treating the underlying cause of disease. You know, yeah. we can give you a drug that lowers your blood sugar or your blood pressure or so forth, but we don't, we spend almost no money trying to address why your blood sugar is high in the first place. Yep. Yeah. And so I, the more I'd spent time on this, the more sort of convinced I was that this was a problem worthy of solving. And given Kevin's background, we sort of engaged him on the problem. And he really added the digital element to it. I had been thinking about this as a sort of bricks and mortar type company. And
0: I sort
1: of, well, let Kevin describe it in his own words, but, but, you know, I think he was sort of convinced of the opportunity, but, but, um, also convinced that digital health was going to be a big deal and that we sort of needed to lean hard into that. And, uh, and so, you know, as, as we did, we wrote a business plan and decided we liked it and uh, started a company.
0: <laughs> Amazing. We're going to go into better therapeutics because mm-hmm. I want to know the nitty gritty about the idea and, and turning that into reality. But before we do that, a couple of things from your guys' backgrounds, that I think will chime with our audience so, Kevin, going back to you, as I say, I think the, it's interesting to me that we've had a couple of guests in a short space of time that have got a military background. I know that Ed, when he came on, was definitely talking about his leadership training and how that kind of uh, has helped him in the startup world. Obviously, you've been in the startup game since the late 90s, and I'm interested in the same thing. I'm interested in, I, I, I'm interested in leadership in general, and I think the military is an interesting place to learn leadership. It's a certain style of leadership. Um, very autocratic, I would say, in terms of the the style that you learn, i.e. there's a chain of command and things can go very wrong if you don't follow orders and things like that. How does that translate for you in running teams, leading startups? And yeah, I suppose, where do those worlds collide for you? Has it helped you?
2: Well, I think um, the premise is good, You know, the military is a leadership school, you know, particularly for officers. Um, But I think, you know, I would challenge you on some of the kind of other assumptions. You know, the military has undergone a huge transformation from kind of autocratic command and control Mm. where somebody at the top issues an order, somebody at the bottom follows the order. That works in the movies, that works in the movies from the (laughs) 1950s, 60s and 70s. Um, But that transformation has been, a transformation away from kind of command and control to team-based leadership that really focuses on transparency of information, common purpose, uh, the delegation of authority as low as possible in the organization, so that decisions are timely, actions are responsive, um, and the decisions are being made by the people that are on the ground with the closest relationship with the data. Interesting. Um, so that you know, that's kind of you know, military leadership theory has evolved a lot. Sure. Back in my day there was the conventional uh, military, and then there was the unconventional, the special operations forces. And we were practicing this distributed leadership back then, Mm. knowing full well that in the special operations, your teams are deployed globally. You may have people working on your teams that are uh, engaged somewhere around the world that you've never actually met face to face. So, you know, with those as the conditions, command and control would never work. Yeah. You know, so we were kind of the test case for what has now been adopted uh, much more broadly. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, so, that, you know, that was my personal experience. Uh, I do think that, you know, that experience was great. You know, it was like going to graduate school for a degree in leadership. And yeah. all of the learning was practical application. Um, You know, and I would say now, uh, now that we're several years into the development of Better Therapeutics, many of those lessons are starting to uh, get reapplied. Okay. We've largely over six years been one organization, you know, getting larger in size, but really one team focused on one common set of initiatives but we can't do that anymore. You know, we're, we're, we're the scope of our work is broadening. We've got products that are beginning, you know, thinking about commercialization while others are in the earliest stages of discovery. Um, We're now trying to, and we've got people distributed all across the United States. Half of my team I've never met face to face. Yeah. So, you know, many of those old lessons are getting reapplied now, you know, creating a team of teams, uh, uh, moving authority and decision making uh, as far down in the organization as we can, but enabling that through talent, data, uh, rapid communication of information. Um, so I, I think for me, it's 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 been similar.
0: That's awesome. And I think... The, the reason that I suppose that does interest me is because as I learn to be a leader and I, le- I learn very much on the job, it's interesting. I don't have a general framework to lean back on. I don't have, I suppose, uh, well, it's exactly that. It's, I suppose, a, a framework of these are the principles. These are the things you should do and shouldn't do. It's, it's interesting that I suppose I have to learn that on the job without that kind of formality to any to any kind of training. I suppose, David, for you, you had that leadership training perhaps in a different way for business. You did an MBA at Harvard, a very different place to learn it than I suppose in the military on the battlefield or, or perhaps similar. I don't know, but do you feel like an MBA prepared you for leadership? Do you feel it prepared you to be a startup founder, a CEO? or do you think the MBA was good for you for different
1: reasons? Um, well, I think it was a contributing factor. You know, the, uh, as I sort of was, spoke dismissively of my job at Exxon earlier, but the truth is that was a great place to start mm. because, because when you're working in an environment, you know, you're working in a physical environment where, where real things happen and mistakes have consequences. And that's a, that's a good place to be when you're trying to learn what to do. And I got responsibility relatively early. I was a supervisor by 25 or 26, and I had dozens of people reporting to me and dealt with things like, you know, what happens when people don't show up for work and and uh, when people make mistakes and discipline issues and hiring and firing people. And was that people a,
0: older than you as well?
1: Yeah, everybody. Right. And so, right. so the the nuts and bolts of how to do that, I, it doesn't they do not cover in business school. Mm. Um, So I arrived at business school sort of woefully unprepared for business school. (laughs) There were all these people from McKinsey and Goldman Sachs and so forth who knew the business school curriculum much better than I did. Like, I didn't know what marketing was. I didn't know how to run a finance spreadsheet, but I had a set of experience that they didn't have. And when you combine that with what you learn in business school, it's, it's, A pretty well-rounded skill set and so i didn't set out to do it that way but it worked out pretty well
0: awesome so on to better therapeutics guys so tell me about the early days i'd like to know how the idea came about and i'd like to know how you turned that idea into an initial reality how did you get from the idea to the mvp first of all Hmm. that takes
2: that kevin yeah. You know, I think the kernel of the idea was, was formed through a set of discussions between David and I. I mean, when, we, when he first called and we, we sat down to talk with, you know, I think it was his then-fiancé, uh, Georgie, we went to lunch. You know, and they were very enthusiastic. And David is a pretty calm guy. So to get, see him get amped up about <laughs> something that he had clearly spent a lot of time studying uh, and learning you know, given his background that he described, when he gets excited about something, a a wise person would pay attention. Um, And I started listening to him and then kind of a lot of the self-discovery around uh, food, how it's made, how it's consumed, and the fact that uh, the way we are now consuming food is the most prevalent, uh, most significant cause uh, of the diseases that affect uh, uh, the most people and cost the most money to try to treat, you know, that is the culprit. Uh, and he just started ticking through, uh, you know, facts that, you know, things that he had learned that were entirely counter to things that I thought I, that I believed to be true. um, and I thought I had done a really good job trying to understand the role of food, nutrition, and exercise in, in health and longevity. But clearly if, if I was fooled, uh, I imagine a lot of other folks were. So I think we started with, there's an re- enormous problem out there of obesity, chronic disease, uh, uh, type two diabetes, uh, and you know certain cancers. We know that the culprit is largely choices we make about uh, food uh, and lifestyle. Um, and yet we're spending almost no money to try to treat it. What if we could, you know, don't don't we over, you know, shouldn't we try to figure out, if, if we're passionate about this topic, shouldn't we try to figure out the solution? One could argue that we're uniquely capable of trying to figure out solutions for really big problems. Um, at the early, I mean, in that early stage, you know, the business model and distribution method was largely, you know, the early thinking was around a physical place, you know, clinicians and practitioners in a physical place with patients. Yeah. Uh, and I was coming off a, a lot of experience or, or around the limitations of businesses that are tied to physical space. Uh, and and couldn't get excited to go pursue a really big idea, but to latch it onto a piece of real estate. Uh, and so then we iterated a bit and very quickly said, yeah, we got a really clear sense of problem, a really good idea of a, a potential solution, but if we really wanna have the kind of, of impact, societal and patient impact that we're looking for, uh, we've got to make this a digital, digitally delivered solution from day one, and not as a complement, as the sole vehicle for distributing treatment uh, to patients wherever they are. Uh, and so that, that became kind of the early generation of better therapeutics, a lot of clarity around problem solution and a digital solution set. But that was about it. Yeah, we weren't really sure what the business was going to be. Um, uh, and that's that you know, we started working on that over the first few years. And maybe I'll wrap by saying, as we got to the idea and the okay, let's go, the, the, the way we started the company was literally in a, uh, a tiny conference room uh, in a consultant's office that uh that three people worked in five days a week with a lot of whiteboards and a lot of empty white space because we didn't really know where to get started um but we figured it out
0: awesome so as we sit here today then what is the product can you describe it to me from a user's perspective
2: sure um so i'm going to start with the company so we've We've developed a software platform for the treatment of cardiovascular and metabolic diseases. So type two diabetes, heart disease, and other related conditions. That platform allows us to create, validate, and then ultimately commercialize discrete prescription digital therapeutics that are prescribed by physicians to patients um, and reimbursed through their insurance. Uh, and those, those therapeutics deliver a digital form of behavioral therapy that is designed to kind of rewire the brain. So if you if you think about it, you know, our, our brains are uh, structured uh, based on what they've been exposed to since we were born. You know, they call it cognitive structuring or the wiring of the brain, and it basically that those cognitive structures uh, determine how we make decisions in our daily lives. You know, an example in food, we make we make over two hundred decisions a day about food, what we're going to eat, where we're going to eat it, are we going to make it, are we going to buy it, and we couldn't consciously make all those decisions on a daily basis. We would run out of time. So those the way that, Humans adapt as those decisions become uh, hardwired into our subconscious. We're making those decisions without even knowing it. That's fine if those decisions are in your uh, to your benefit, but in things like uh, uh, cardiovascular metabolic diseases, it's the decisions we're making without even knowing it that are causing us, causing many people to get very very sick requiring medications, more medications, hospitalizations and surgeries. So our product is designed to deliver a form of behavioral therapy called nutritional CBT that really examines and challenges the cognitive patterns, the way people think, so that they can kind of remove what's not working to their health interests and replace those thought structures, beliefs, and expectations with an alternative, an alternative way of thinking that if adopted and practiced their diseases, they can treat them, reverse them, and in many cases uh, cure them altogether. So from, from a patient's perspective, they're getting a prescription for 90 days of treatment that guides them through kind of an intensive behavioral intervention that is really meant to rewire the cognitive structures of the brain that are getting in the way of, of making changes in behavior. So that things like dietary pattern, physical activity and lifestyle change to a degree that that uh, reverses disease.
0: Awesome. There's a few things that I suppose I want to ask you about here. The first one is that you guys, I suppose, David, you've got an, you've got a background in, in pharma, certainly, but you guys don't have background or firsthand experience in sort of the ground floor clinical healthcare. Do you think that's actually helped you? Those fresh eyes, being able to because I think there's a there's a there's a wonderful kind of I suppose simplicity to the way that you see the problem which is this kind of I can't believe that this exists in the way it does and you kind of see that and speak about that with a with a kind of awe that a clinician who's been in the system for 10 15 years would not would not think about because it's just the way that we're trained it's just the the environment in which we've grown up and in which we are indoctrinated I think it seems to me that your fresh eyes and that kind of initial naivety and wonder has got you to a place of, I cannot believe that this is actually the way that the system works. Surely we can change it. I I think that must then give you the motivation to go and do so, perhaps not knowing how difficult that might be as well, which I think is another interesting part. Would you agree?
1: Uh, Yes, probably. I, you know, we, both Kevin and I had worked in healthcare before, so we we weren't completely okay. out But um but I think we can I think we can generalize and say, you know, disruptive solutions almost always require an outside perspective. Yeah. If the if the experts knew how to do it, it would be done already. Yeah. Um you know, that's it's not all a positive. Like, so it's good to have a fresh perspective but you've also got to have enough expertise surrounding you to keep you from doing stupid stuff. Yeah. So I I think one of the hardest things, maybe the hardest thing about being an entrepreneur is you've got to ask experts, their opinion. Like you've got to get a broad range of stuff and then you have to not believe them. Yeah. (laughs) You, you, you have to, you have to, you have to understand their reasons, but not their conclusions. And work through it and develop your own conclusions. And if done well, you get really disruptive, valuable stuff. Yes. If done poorly, you do stupid things that anybody could have told you wasn't going to work.
0: Yes. You know,
1: for we'll, me, for the first one.
0: <laughs> well, for me, this is the reason that I've said for a long time on this podcast. You know, the amount of computer scientists, data scientists, and engineers that we have on this podcast, I say that. We should be doing ward rounds with engineers. We should be doing ward rounds with computer scientists because you're absolutely right. If the expertise was all there in-house, it would be built already. We absolutely need people with outside expertise who look at problems completely differently. There's a really interesting wave now, I think, of clinicians that were once engineers, that were once computer scientists, or indeed, they go the other way, they do medicine, and then they go and do computer science, data science engineering. And I think having the framework in which to not only view and understand the problem as a domain expert, but also the framework to actually potentially see solutions and how you might build them as an engineer, I think is incredibly important. And it is no accident that you know, 50% of the people we have on this podcast are engineers. That is absolutely no accident at all, because you guys clearly have a mentality and a framework in which to view a problem, which actually also includes (laughs) the solution. Because I cannot tell you the amount of times that I got frustrated as a clinician, just hearing conversations about the problem and the problem reframed and another audit about the problem. And I've figured out another way to explain the problem. And it just, you know, it was very frustrating for someone like me it was just all about solutions and i think i didn't have that framework and so i would always look to the people like yourselves to help me then to try and build them together and that's how i got my start but i absolutely agree i, th- I think i think that outside that outside innovation is absolutely so important um the the second question i had was around that decision around physical space versus technology obviously the unit economics completely changes when you then start talking about technology and the scalability of it and indeed what you're doing with digital therapeutics and in this digital therapeutics specifically you're scaling CBT that you're, you're scaling cognitive behavioral therapy traditionally a very one-to-one human-to-human therapy that when you then throw technology into the mix all of a sudden becomes extremely scalable we've seen the likes of big health peter Hames, sleepio daylight you know all of those types of companies that have done this extremely well and obviously you guys part of this with nutritional cbt as well um that decision to move from physical space to tech was that a difficult one to let go of that brick brick and mortar idea or did you then David, take Kevin's view of the unit economics and go, well, I can see that actually, <laughs> this, this might have legs.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll start on this, Kevin, you can <laughs> jump in. I, yeah. So, you know, one of the things we realized in 2015, it not only was the problem gigantic, but there were, there were, there was evidence of a solution. Like there were, there, if you go to the scientific literature, there are a number of, of well-done papers showing dedicated doctors and healthcare providers working one-on-one or in small groups with patients could effectively get the patients to change behavior. And those behavior changes would treat or even reverse the disease. So, you know, it was almost like these physicians calling out in the wilderness going, you know, Hey, we, we've got this, like we understand the solution. But of course it wasn't really a solution because it doesn't scale. <laughs> you can't, you can't possibly, we don't have enough, therapists to go around to treat the hundred million U S adults with a metabolic disease. And we couldn't afford it if we did. So we already knew kind of what problem we were trying to solve. And so when, when Kevin, uh, you know, Kevin basically presented a hypothesis, which is what if we could deliver the same sort of results that you get in one on one in small group cognitive behavioral therapy, but we could do it as software. Think of how much more scalable and affordable that would be. Like now we can actually impact the problem at scale. And, you know, it was a, it was a really important insight, but not one that needed a lot of discussion after (laughs) after he communicated. Yeah. (laughs) fair. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. And in terms of the business model then, so who who pays for it um is there you know there's a lot of digital therapeutics where the relationship between the well the relationship is between the patient and the app or however that digital route has been delivered there there are also digital therapeutics where the healthcare system is involved and there's a fair exchange of data there and there's actually then improvements that can be made in the system and so the people that end up paying, there's other people that save and things can cross budget boundaries and it can become a bit messy to form a business model. But how are you guys going about that?
2: James, you're, you're scaring me a little bit because you just raised a lot of things that are very uh Have I, tri- have I triggered complex? you, Kevin? I'm, not, I'm not sure I've ever <laughs> thought of any of those. Um... <laughs> No, I think, I think you're right. There's a variety of models have emerged for, for digital therapeutics. I mean, some have combined digital technologies with human care providers yep. into a, a digital-enabled care solution.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, some of those are provided remotely through telemedicine. Others are sold to large self-insured employers as, as employee benefits yep. because you know, uh, large employers carry a heavy economic burden for their employees' health care. You know, in our case, you know, this is, you know, one of the things I learned from David early on that I, I, I wasn't uh, as good at before as I think I am now, is this idea that he was talking about is you can't be overly influenced by conventional wisdom or tied to precedent if you wanna be a really good entrepreneur. Yeah. And that's a hard lesson to learn. I mean, you gotta learn that through coaching and mentorship and practice. The other part of that is it pays to have a little bit of experience so you don't do stupid things. I mean, that's what really allowed us to hone in quickly on kind of the business model that would bring our, our you know, what we were trying to do to fruition, to impact the most patients. Like we knew that if we could innovate around product and deliver cognitive behavioral therapy digitally that then if we wanted to have the greatest patient impact possible, there's a model. You get FDA approval, uh, physicians can prescribe, uh, those prescriptions are reimbursed by insurers like a drug. Why? Because you save the money, yeah. you get patients off of medications that they don't need and patients get better and their quality of life goes up. So if you can, if you can develop an innovative proposition where all of the constituents win uh, your ability to scale is really by understanding how healthcare works. Yes. Uh, last point 80% of healthcare spending originates with a physician's prescription. Doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that if you want to have impact on patients, that the prescribers need to be your partners. You need to give them tools that they've never had before, give them the information they need to understand how to use them. And they will guide their patients through, uh, through their prescribing and, and medical management. So that part made complete sense to us. Just drive innovation where, where it's needed and then fit within the distribution system to scale.
1: Awesome.
0: And so whereabouts are you guys now and where is Better Therapeutics now in terms of that scale?
2: Yeah, we have our first product for type two diabetes that's uh, in the midst of its pivotal trial. Um, that trial will generate the safety and efficacy data that we'll use to file our first submission to FDA next year, and we would expect an approval sometime around the end of next year and a commercial launch in uh, in 23. We've got a pipeline of, of uh, follow-on candidates in. Hypertension, high cholesterol, chronic kidney and liver diseases. So we're advancing that pipeline uh, as well, uh, and we think in the not too distant future, several years from now, we'll have a diabetes therapeutic that's that's scaling uh, scaling well, uh, 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 dealing with a really horrible problem, mm-hmm. uh, and we'll be launching about one new approved therapeutic each year uh, thereafter.
0: Awesome. There's lots of different people that listen to this podcast from clinicians to hospital management to the hospital owners, either. There's, pl- there's plenty of people that, that listen to this podcast in terms of the people that you're interested in getting in front of as we sit here today, who are they and why?
1: So, um, you know, healthcare is an ecosystem and, uh, and so we want to talk to the ecosystem. Um, obviously, the... The thing we're in the middle of right now is gathering the data in a pivotal trial yeah that that will, that will support our fda filing and approval um upon the successful conclusion of that we'll be commercializing these therapeutics and and as we talk to people about what we're doing we get almost no pushback like yeah. you know whether it's the physician or a payer or a patient, like this is something that fundamentally makes sense to everybody. The, the challenge is just that it's a brand new approach, <laughs> you know? You know, So you're, you're sort of educating from the beginning. Yeah. So you're going to get across the concept that this is just like a ther, just like a drug. It's a therapeutic. The doc, the same patient goes to the same doctor, gets the same diagnosis and gets a prescription for a digital therapeutic instead of a chemotherapeutic hmm. and then after that it gets reimbursed in the same way and so forth so really what we're looking to do is educate the ecosystem on the opportunity here thank like you we if we just fast forward I don't, I don't know how long it is it's five years or ten years but there there is a point in the future where every newly diagnosed patient with a metabolic disease should get a prescription digital therapeutic first right why? Why would you prescribe a drug until you've you know, you've made the effort to to try to change the underlying causes of the disease? So you know that's the future that we imagine and we're working towards. Mm-hmm. It'll just take a whole bunch of conversations and and uh, data to get us there.
0: Yeah, and I absolutely agree with you. I think our dependency on drug therapy as clinicians is something that has always fascinated me. I think even when I was a practicing clinician, it always, I say always, that's probably overegging my own ability, but I think there were times where I really felt like we were just papering over the cracks. It seemed to me that a focus on cure would never get us even close to what we as clinicians always wanted which was the best thing for our patients prevention was always going to be what did that Mm -hmm. addressing root cause was always going to be that a drug therapy was only ever really going to be just something that we placed on top as a temporary measure it just so happens that once that's how dependency works when you start with something that is a quick fix you end up taking more of that quick fix until all of a sudden you know the system's recalibrated to everybody just having the quick fix and you know it's it it was something that always frustrated me and in fact you know being very honest it's it's part of the reason that I one of the reasons anyway that I started looking elsewhere of things to do with my medical degree and my medical career thus far it was it was in part too frustrating to me that that even you know back then you know the, the thought of, of prescribing someone cbt via an app would have been laughed out the room you know mm-hmm. 10 years ago it really would and you know it's it, it's a shame because i think i think healthcare is changing i think people want more long term solutions people want more natural solutions people are getting less and less okay with just taking a drug to help them do anything. And I think it's through solutions like better therapeutics that we're going to get to that vision of the future, that new way of doing things, that new way that gets back to, I suppose, to get too deep here, but I suppose like a a level of humanity, like that's what we're about, right? What, What we're about in terms of the way that we help and care for each other is through advice and talking to each other that's there's something that feels very natural about that there's something that feels very connected about that and for me that's why digital therapeutics especially those that that utilize cbt have always been interesting to me because well the the main reason is they work and i think that's the that's the super interesting thing that when you do put them up against drugs i believe Sleepio has got more evidence now because it's digital than the next three insomnia drugs combined. I believe it is first line prescribable now in the. US for insomnia as ahead of ahead of drugs because it is so effective. It's only a matter of time, as you say, David, before that uh, comes uh, appears across all sorts of different clinical areas, cardiovascular disease, goodness the amount of money you would save for the system the amount of impact you will have to patients will honestly be unparalleled in my view cardiovascular disease is an incredible time and money sink for for so many people um and you know all that morbidity all that suffering all that pain that that you guys can cure it uh, or prevent indeed is uh, is very 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 interesting to me um it must be it must be motivating to to I suppose get out of bed in the morning with that as a view of the future i think you know with your with your backgrounds and the fact you've worked in healthcare previously and and being able to do this i think it's interesting you, you know kevin when you at the start said that entrepreneurship was going to be something that would fulfill you um and that you lent into it for that reason and, and david you said something similar it must be nice for you guys now working together and 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 working on this problem to solve right
2: yeah, I mean, I think that was part of our early discussions. Is you know, we both reached a stage in our career where we didn't have to do anything that we didn't, yeah, we didn't think was important, valuable to society, have have the potential to have lasting effect. Um, yeah, I I, I haven't been this fulfilled in trying to do something with purpose, yeah, uh, since. Thirty years ago, back to the back to the <laughs> beginning of our storytelling, uh, you know, in the military, that was the last time I felt that I was part of something that had a purpose this profound, and I I just couldn't work in any other way at this stage.
0: Awesome. Um, so guys, it's been a pleasure having you on. I think what you're doing at Better Therapeutics is incredible for all the reasons that I've said. My final question would be that if anybody wants to get in touch with you guys personally or indeed Better Therapeutics, what's the best way for them to get hold of you?
2: Bettertx.com, B-E-T-T-E-R-T-X.com. You can reach us and learn more about the company right on our website
0: awesome and i will stick the link to that website in the description of this episode So, kevin and david thank you so much for coming on it's been a pleasure thank you james hey everyone thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode remember to subscribe rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content